I'm Shelley Schlender. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Coming up, hummingbirds. One thing I'm seeing here is that occasionally the hummingbirds will have a little kerfuffle with each other, and then they both fly up into the sky. Um, do they ever actually injure each other? They do, and I think kerfuffle is a very kind description <laughs> for knockout, dragout fights. whirr so rapid you won't see wings. This fairy-sized creature hovers over late summer flowers. You might think it's a butterfly, but it's too fast. In the shadows, it's gray and brown. Sunlight makes it dazzle with orange or green. These are hummingbirds. We're at a mountain cabin, not far up from Boulder. Walking toward us is a man with a quiet and steady manner. His hair is silvery white. He wears glasses. I'm Steve Baricius. I live in Peaceful Valley, Colorado. Steve's Peaceful Valley cabin was built in the 1930s by his grandfather. That grandfather loved hummingbirds. He kept hummingbird feeders out all summer, filled with a food similar to the nectar of flowers. It's fresh sugar water. Steve Barishas keeps up the tradition with dozens of sugar water feeders that draw loads of hummingbirds. That whirring sound comes from hummingbird wings. Hundreds of hummingbirds zipping around, flashing greens and orange and patches of red. Watching it all is Boulder naturalist Ruth Carol Cushman. The hummingbirds are just all around us, almost like insects. There's so many of them. It's just a, a paradise out here. You probably do a lot of that, just sitting and enjoying it. Steve Barishas agrees that it's a paradise. Yes, in between filling feeders, yes. <laughs> Steve's got nearly two dozen feeders out today, which he's constantly filling with sugar water. Already this morning, he says... I made roughly nine gallons of That's nine gallons of sugar water just today. Plus, the cabin's next to a wildflower meadow and a babbling brook. All this appeals to hummingbirds. So right now, we are running a combination of flowers and feeders to attract the birds. And of course the other attractant are the insects that you know, are, seem abundant here and along the river. Uh, currently I'm running about uh, I think 20 or 21 feeders. Normally through the summer I'll have 16 to 18 feeders out. My next door neighbor also runs about 18 feeders. And together given our sugar usage I calculate we're attracting a minimum of 15,000 individual hummingbirds daily. You heard that correctly. Steve Barishas says that during late summer, 15,000 hummingbirds come to his Peaceful Valley cabin every day. It's really quite amazing. Many people think of hummingbirds as rather solitary creatures, but in fact, it's pretty obvious they're a very gregarious lot. Their interactions while competitive, and they have to be competitive to, to gain the, the food resources and keep those in order to survive. 
They also need that interaction for breeding, for establishing territories. One hummingbird feeder is hanging almost over our heads, so Steve Baricius moves it out of the way. A little later, Boulder naturalist Ruth Carol Cushman says this. I've been noticing as we are sitting here, the hummingbirds keep coming back to that empty space where you remove the feeder. So they also learn where the feeders are even when the feeders are gone. Yes, hummingbirds have a fine sense of location. Scientists have determined that they can remember 5,500 flower locations. So when they return in the spring, they know just where to go to find those particular flowers and plots of flowers. We see this with the feeders. I've seen this ever since a childhood, where in the spring, before I'd put out a hummingbird feeder, they're there knocking on my window, <laughs> literally knocking on the window asking where the feeder is. And this may be in the middle of April and we'll have 25 or 30 inches of snow on the ground and these are the early arrivals who are coming to established territories. So sure enough, I get feeders out very quickly for them. Do they ever light on you when you're trying to hang a feeder? In it? Uh, generally no, but they'll come very close. I think they know what is a threat and what is not, and they, uh, I believe pretty surely, they, they know that we're not to be feared. When we carry a feeder out to replace one that's empty, they follow us. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they'll perch on the feeder before we, as we're even walking toward the location. Now that it's fall migration, the hummingbirds are tanking up. There are so many, it's a blur. But sitting next to Boulder naturalist Ruth Carol Cushman is Boulder County Audubon President Scott Sievers, who among other things is an ornithologist. Scott Sievers is an expert on birds, including seeing birds. So among the dazzling green and orange birds and red-throated and white-throated and green-throated hummingbirds zooming between the feeders, Scott singles out one that's kind of orange. It's a small hummingbird, and it's chasing a larger hummingbird. Well, yeah, I am seeing a juvenile rufous hummingbird over here. And the way I can tell is rufous hummingbirds have this rusty orange color. I like to call them little orange fluff balls. That little orange fluff ball is chasing other hummingbirds away. And they're very aggressive because they have the longest distance to migrate of all our hummingbirds. So they've acquired this aggressiveness so that they can make sure they've acquired enough food to make that migration. That young Rufus was probably born last spring near Washington State. This fall, it might travel to central Mexico. Next spring, it might be up around California. Also at the feeders is a slightly larger hummingbird that's shades of emerald and forest green. During the summer, this broad-tailed hummingbird is common here. It's likely to winter over 2,000 miles away in Guatemala. Fall migration has already begun, so you might spot a broad-tailed hummingbird passing through your backyard. With that in mind, Boulder naturalist Scott Sievers gives this detailed description. The females have a white throat, and the males have a deep red throat that really shines in the sun. Uh, a lot of people, they call them ruby-throated hummingbirds. Well, they're not. They're broad-tailed hummingbirds. And probably the best distinction is that trill that we've been hearing all this time. Broadtails probably have the most musical wing of all our hummingbirds, and it's produced by a little slot out at the tip of the wing that, when it gets up to speed, makes the trilling noise that we're hearing. Here's Boulder naturalist Ruth Carol Cushman. 
Yeah, one of my favorite hummingbirds is one we seldom see, and that's the calliope. It's much smaller than either the rufous or our most common one, the broad-tailed. But the calliope has purple magenta-colored streamers that come down goodness, about an inch. Do you think they're that long? Uh, they can approach that, and these are birds that are two and three-quarter inches overall length. They're just really tiny little things. Very, yeah. very tiny birds. As you can tell, Steve Baricius knows plenty about hummingbirds. And now, Ruth Carol Cushman says this. Well, also, in 2001, you and Deb, your wife, uh, were the first in the nation to earn a hummingbird bander certification by the North American Banding Council, right? That's correct. So hummingbirds require a special training and authorization. So we were actually the first in the nation to to certify as banders with North American Banding Council. Steve Barishas says hummingbird banding is a rare skill. I think Deb and I are among about half a dozen in the U.S. and Canada um, certified to train hummingbird banders. Today, Barishas will show Boulder naturalists Scott Sievers and Ruth Carol Cushman, how to put a bird band on the ankle of a tiny hummingbird. But before the bird banding starts, Ruth Carol Cushman points out that many people wince at the idea of banding any bird. Maybe you could tell us, Steve, why bird banding is important, because I have some friends who are uneasy about the concept. Well, if they were to watch and study bird banding and bird banders in action, they should have no real concerns. Bird banding is fundamental to the understanding of bird biology. Everything we know about bird longevity uh, and migration and nesting studies and so many aspects of bird biology has come through bird banding. And even though we're in uh, in a sea change of technological change that will improve our understanding of nature and birds, there's still going to be a need for people to catch and mark birds for further study. Well, I've seen you band hummingbirds before, and I, I know you are very gentle and very careful with them, and I think you said that you had had either no or almost no fatalities. Yes. It, you know, if it's done right, banding is extremely safe in handling for the birds. Uh, in something over 14,000 hummingbirds that we've banded, we've had three fatalities. One was uh, an adult female broadtail that came to us here with her air sac swollen, filled with liquid. She had been stung by a hornet. This is a common problem, unfortunately. And the same happened with an adult female black chin in Palisade, where it came to us having just been stung by a wasp. You'll see hummingbirds be act very wary when there are wasps or or hornets around. So you want we to have ask? a friend, Gary Emerson, I don't know whether you knew him or not, and they fed hummingbirds. And one time he looked out the window and there was a hummingbird on the ground. And when he went and picked it up, an ant was attached to the tongue. Hmm. And he got a pair of tweezers and pulled that ant off and the hummingbird flew away. My guess would be it had struck a window. Uh, it's a common problem with the hummingbirds. and. 
certainly very quickly if there are ants or other critters around, tarantulas or large wasps or whatever, they'll go to prey upon the bird. When you see this happen, a bird on the ground, it's best to assess the situation, gently pick them up, put them in a safe place. And if you can, I will put one in a small box that's open where they could fly away from, but so that they're isolated from attacks. Getting back to bird banding, Steve Barisha says he and his wife have worked to make it safe. Uh, we've been banding, for instance, at uh, the Sedona Hummingbird Festival since 2012. I have a team of fine master banders that join me, and in all of those years, we've never had a single incident of concern about the bird safety or uh, about the safety or behavior of any of our guests. But they zoom so fast. How does Barishas catch a hummingbird? It has to do with a hummingbird feeder inside a large wire cage with a trap door that right now is open. Stay tuned. I'm Shelley Schlender. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today we're in the mountains above Boulder with Boulder naturalists Scott Sievers and Ruth Carol Cushman. We're learning about hummingbirds from master hummingbird bander Steve Barishas. Steve is one of a handful of people in the entire world who are certified to train other people in how to band hummingbirds. Barishas says hummingbird banding has been instrumental in helping scientists understand bird migration, bird health, their lifespans. So now, Steve Barishas points 50 feet away to a hummingbird feeder that he's filled with sugar water. This hummingbird feeder is surrounded by a spacious wire cage with a large trap door that's currently lifted up, meaning open. Through that open trap door, hummingbirds zoom in. They dip their long black needle-like beaks into sugar water. Then they zoom out up into the sky. From 50 feet away, Barishas holds a taut, almost invisible fishing line that he's tied to the open trap door. All he has to do is loosen the fishing line and the trap door will close, but he doesn't lower the door right away. If you were to drop a trap door inadvertently, the bird could get caught in that one inch area around the edges of the trap door. So we want to avoid that. He waits until only two hummingbirds are in the cage. Oops, one flies out. He makes sure that the one that's left is feeling so safe, it's folded its dazzling emerald-colored wings. Steve loosens the fishing line. The cage door closes so smoothly, the hummingbird doesn't notice. Steve walks quickly to the cage. He reaches into a small opening. Startled, the hummingbird lifts off the perch. Steve gently folds his hand over the tiny hummingbird. Gently, he puts it in a sock-sized mesh bag. So we immediately put them into a cloth bag where we can see their movements and see that they're doing fine. It allows them to breathe and see the world around them. And it helps to calm them down from the very brief moment that we catch the bird. Steve Barishas takes the hummingbird over to his workbench. He hangs the little mesh bag on a hook while he puts on jeweler's goggles that magnify everything. Then he takes the tiny hummingbird out of the mesh bag. 
and his vibration is really from his respiration. They also have the largest heart of all animals compared to their mass, the largest breast muscles, and the largest brain. There may be some exceptions with little pygmy shrews, but I've never measured their, their heart or their brain. Basically, when we catch the bird, we just make a cage around its body so that it isn't going to flap its wings around too much. We'll let him calm down a bit. Between his thumb and index finger, you can see the long, black, needle-like beak of the hummingbird. You can see the dazzling green feathers on its tiny head. You see its bright black eyes. This is an adult male broad-tailed hummingbird. In nature, when a bird is trapped like this, it's in the mouth of a cat or a snake or a hawk. All birds have a deep dread of being held. Steve Baricius knows this, so he's being gentle and quick while this bird seems to scold. Yes. He doesn't already have a band, so we will put the band on him. He will wear H78883. Do you often catch, recatch birds? Yes, fairly often, although here we're only capturing a small percentage of the total number of birds. So here I just carefully grasp his toes to control movement of his leg. He puts a tiny, tiny band on the tiny ankle of the bird. And then I turn the band around to see that it's butted perfectly correctly. If it's misaligned even a tiny fraction of a millimeter, we have to readjust that. And this one's perfect. We're very careful not to release a bird where the band is not properly butted. If they're offset just a tiny bit, there's a possibility that they could catch vegetative material or spider webs or whatever. But this one looks good. Master hummingbird bander Steve Baricious says that bird banding has documented many surprises. For instance, one bird caught recently near Rocky Mountain National Park already had a bird band on it that indicates that tiny hummingbird is over 10 years old. Yes. Baricious weighs the hummingbird. The typical hummingbird weighs about the same amount as one single penny. I think he weighs about 3.9. He's a heavy guy. Gosh, 4.6. He's putting on fat. Our local breeding birds won't show additional or excess fat, but he's actually bulging with fat. To confirm this, Steve Barishes gently blows through a straw that fluffs up the hummingbird feathers and shows its skin. You can see the blood-infused skin at the body. Uh, the bird doesn't grow feathers in that body or breast. They just come in from the side. And you'll be able to see that red body and below that uh, lighter colored tissue which looks just like chicken fat. Oh yeah. Mm. That amount of fat tells me that either he is a local preparing to migrate or he's already on his migration. He could well be from northern Wyoming and he could get here in about two days. He guides its long black beak into a tray of sugar water. I'm offering him a drink because the birds that come into the traps are typically 
ready to feed. And some birds will feed, others not so much. Now he's drinking right away. You can see this, the end of his tongue is moving in and out. You can see his throat move as he drinks. Just licking 11 to 13 times a second to move that flow of liquid along the sides of their tongue. We'll go out in the sunlight to have a better look. Here you can see this amazing iridescence in there. Oh, yes, it changed so radically. It's really more of a ruby color than in the ruby-throated hummingbird, which tends to be more orange in color. You're hearing all around us the cowbell sound of the flying broad-tailed hummingbird. And here you can see what essentially produces this, so this cool. is the notch between the outer or tenth primary wing feather and the ninth primary wing feather that creates a whistle. Ruth, would you like to release this bird? Oh, I would love to. Gently, Steve Baricious places the tiny hummingbird on Ruth Carroll's open hand. Eyes closed. Wings folded, the hummingbird rests. He's going to go when he's ready to go. He's not worried. We're not going to hurt him. He knows us. And he's checking us out. Do you notice the cluster of feathers that make up the eyelashes on these birds? Yeah. And they function the same way that the eyelashes do in humans. When he gets on his feet, he'll be ready to go. Slowly it gets on its feet. Suddenly it lifts up and hovers. Then it zooms away. Ah, oh, I could feel the wind when you <sighs> took mm -hmm. off. Ah, mm -hmm. oh, that was magical. As Master Birdbander Steve Barishas talks with Boulder naturalist Ruth Carol Cushman and Scott Seavers, two hummingbirds race overhead, chasing one another. One thing I'm seeing here is that occasionally the hummingbirds will have a little kerfuffle with each other and they sort of go at each other and then they both fly up into the sky. Um, do they ever actually injure each other? They do and I think kerfuffle is a very kind description <laughs> for knockout, drag out fights and because these birds are doing what they're They've learned through evolution to be able to defend their food resources and their territories. They do injure one another. I often see them poke other hummingbirds in the back of the head when they want access to a feeder or a flower. You'll see wing beating, just like you see in grouse and white-tailed ptarmigan. When they're in a territorial fight, they'll use their wings to beat off their, uh, the intruder into their territories. And sometimes I've even seen them uh, attack other birds, much larger than they are. Part of this is yes, chasing, chasing the big guy out of their out of their playground, and uh, I think it's also curiosity, and it's this this compulsion to say, 
I'm the biggest hummingbird around and I can chase a red-tailed hawk or a jay or a crow and make him change his flight just because of my little pecking and, dis and harassment. If these birds were two feet wingspan, we should be afraid. <laughs> like if our cats were tigers. Right, uh -huh. exactly. <laughs> the size of tiger. I've been interested in hummingbirds my entire life. I think Grandma and Grandpa started feeding hummingbirds when they first settled in Peaceful Valley in, in 1938. And as a young child, uh, growing up in the 50s, Grandma and Grandpa always had feeders at the cabin. And I would put my hands around the perches of the feeders and have hummingbirds light on my fingers, sometimes four or five at a time, six birds at a time, and you feel the claws as they dig in to hold on to your finger, and you feel the vibration of their respiration, their heartbeat. You can't help but be connected to them to understand that uh, they're really not so unlike us. And, uh, Lost where to go there. <laughs> edit, that edit. Very, very good. I like that. Um, yeah, I like that too. Steve Baricius is an expert on hummingbirds. He's one of the few people in the world who furthers our understanding about wild hummingbirds by training people to safely band hummingbirds. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Beth Bennett. This week's show was produced by me, Shelley Schlender. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Metro Booming and James Blake. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and hot links to topics we've talked about today. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Shelley Schlender.